Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we're uh, indeed grateful to be in this place this morning as we worship you and focus our sights upon you and hopefully uh, soften our hearts before you. And I pray that as we turn now to your word, that you might be honored, that you might be glorified, and that God, as we uh, talk about what you have revealed, that we might understand it rightly, and then, Lord, apply this diligently to our hearts. God, some of the things we're going to look at today are going to cause some of us um, just a, a little bit of discomfort uh, because it's going to cause us to have to get out of ourselves. And yet, Lord, we know that as we follow you, both in obedience as well as passion, that, uh, Lord, there really does become satisfaction and joy as we do your will here on earth. So, God, may we keep that in mind, and may you continue to bless us during this time, we pray in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. So we're going to start off relatively simple this morning, and then we're going to move toward the complex. And here's the simple thing that I need you to latch on to, and that is that if there is one thing you and I have learned in life so far, it's this, that if you don't know how to get where you want to go, you better get directions. Can you affirm that right now? It's really true. I mean, even the most prideful among us, there are times in life where we don't know how to get where we want to go, and so we know we need to find somehow the directions that we need. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought of all the different ways in our modern world that you and I get and receive and utilize directions. So look up here at the monitor. Some of us just live by written directions, right? You just want to see it written out. And so you need to be told to head south on 19th Street and then go 141 feet and then go left here. And, and you just do well with, with written things. But then there's others of us who do much better with verbal explanations. So I love this picture. You got three little guys here on a, on a tri-bike, and they're trying to find somewhere. And so the policeman's guiding them verbally, saying, you know, go this way, go that way. And some of us do really well that way. And then there's others of us that are really visual. We just live by maps, right? You just have to see it. Tell me where point A is, show me where point B is, and then I can follow the line uh, to where I need to go. You, you're, you're a really good visual or map person. And, and so you got written, you got verbal, you got visual. And, and then we've added it all together in our modern day world with a GPS, haven't we? Which is like all three of them rolled up into one. It speaks to you, it shows you pictures, and even it can have text on it. And many of us live by our GPS. And so simply latch on to this. There are so many ways that we have developed to get and give directions because we all know, and this is why we do this, that there are times in life that we need directions if we want to get where we desire to go. And there is the odd person among us who absolutely refuses to never get directions. You maybe know somebody like that, or maybe it's you, and here's how, what you end up looking like when that, uh, you're that person. <laughs> you end up looking at, at, at a woods in front of you, and you have no idea which way to go. Now, why is all of this important? Uh, why is this idea of direction getting so important? Here it is, and that's that God says it's the exact same when it comes to knowing and finding him. It's true that he wants every one of us to know and find him this side of heaven. It's what the Bible calls salvation. But he also knows that in our hazy and darkened nature that every single one of us have, that we need direction and we need help if we're ever going to find our way to God. 
And so just like there are various and sundry ways that we find direction in our physical lives today, written, verbal, visual, GPS, the Bible says that likewise, God uses a wonderful mix of various avenues that allow us to journey to him. And there are avenues, I'm going to warn you right now, that involve multiple players all doing their part and even utilize multiple routes, but all leading to one thing, and that's a salvific understanding of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to read about it. We're going to look at just one Bible passage today, but we're going to do a deep dive in it. We're going to park in front of it. It's Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15. And so if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn there right now. And as you're turning there, let me fill you in on the context. Paul the Apostle is the author here. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so everything he says here is true. And he's thinking and writing in chapter 10 here about the very nature of salvation and specifically how somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's going to lay out a journey here that each person can and should take that will lead them to salvation. So Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, this is what he says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, this is obviously an action-packed journey that Paul the Apostle is describing here. And when you look closely at this passage from a grammatical standpoint, you're going to notice that he asks four rhetorical how questions. He, four times he's going to say how, 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 how. Four rhetorical questions. And again, when you look closely grammatically, in these four questions, there are five action verbs that tell us about five different legs of a journey that God wants us to take in order to experience his salvation in Christ. But here's what we need to know before we dive into these five legs, and that is that the outcome is not guaranteed. The outcome is not certain at all. Though this is the path God wants everybody to take, it depends on three sets of players, each doing their part. And these three sets of players are God, who, by the way, is going to do his part, and then others, and then even us. So let me show you what I mean. I call this the five-fold journey to God. And I put it here in linear fashion, so the text is kind of small, but we'll make it bigger here as we go along. But when you reverse order what Paul is asking here, because again, he's reverse ordering it uh, in his rhetorical questions. When we reverse order these three verses here, we notice that there are five legs of a journey that all need to happen if somebody's going to experience salvation. And they are that somebody needs to be sent, somebody needs to speak, somebody needs to hear, somebody needs to believe, somebody needs to call. And when all of that happens, when they work through those five legs of the journey, salvation in Christ is experienced. Send, speak, hear, believe, and call. And so let me walk you through each one of these carefully, and you'll see what I mean. So notice that it all begins with this idea of send. It says in verse 15, how, that's one of the rhetorical questions, how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
So it all begins with God sending someone to a lost person that needs to hear the gospel message. And believe it or not, I found this kind of strange in my study this week. Bible experts actually wrestle at this point with who precisely is the one that's being sent. I think the answer is obvious. I'll just spill the beans right now. I think the answer is you. I think the answer is me. I think that's who Paul is assuming is being sent here. But the commentators spend a tremendous amount of time wrestling with this one. But, but I think the context here and then bringing Jesus into the equation makes it very clear this is what Paul has in mind. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus will use this exact same word, send, when it says that he chose 72 of his disciples, 70 followers of him, and he what? Sent them out to town to town to tell people about the gospel. And then in John 17, verse 18, Jesus will use this again, this word sent again, when he says, just as God sent me into the world here, so I am sending you into the world. And again, he's referring to his disciples, anybody who claims to be a follower of him. So the context of this word send in the New Testament almost always assumes any follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus sent his followers into their spheres of influence to tell others about him. And what Paul is saying here is that we likewise are being sent. And the reason that we know it means you is because the people that Jesus sent, get this, were fishermen. And they were ex-IRS agents. And they were reformed prostitutes. In other words, Jesus never sent the pastors <laughs> out. He never sent the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes because, quite frankly, they didn't listen to him. No, he sent those who had day jobs back into their jobs to be the ones to be carriers of the gospel. Those are the ones who have been sent and quite frankly, that's you and me today. And so I got to tell you, I got this way back in the 1980s when I became a Christian. I was in a dormitory at my college, and I was like, well, hey, I got this amazing relationship with Jesus. I guess I better go tell others about that. And then I joined a fraternity, which was a mistake, but I had already joined it. And so I thought, well, these guys are the farthest things from Jesus, so I guess I better go tell them about Jesus. Nobody paid me to do it. I wasn't a pastor yet. Nobody cajoled me to do it or guilt-tripped me into it. I just knew, because this book tells me this, that I was sent. And so that's why we're doing the Love One journey right now that Neil was talking about. But we are all sent just into our spheres of influence, a very natural, organic thing you already have set up in your life. You're sent into that world that you're already going to go into to love one, two, or three, love the people around you because God is sending you to them. Now, once a current Christ follower gets that he or she is to be sent, then a second thing needs to happen in, the leg, uh, in this journey towards salvation, and that is that you need to speak. Look at verse 14 again. It says, how, second rhetorical question, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, we need to wrestle with this word here, preaching. I, I don't usually uh, take 
to task any of the Bible translations around me. And by the way, the reason I don't, because some of you do. Some of you tell me you hate this translation. You don't like this. I tell you the reason I don't is because the guys that translated the Bible are like 10 times smarter than you and me combined. And so, you know, when I stand up here and say, well, I don't like the way they translated that word, I mean, it'd be like telling your doctor, well, I don't like that diagnosis, you know, and he's like, what medical school did you go to, you know? And, and so we don't do that. And so I don't usually take the Bible translators to task, but having said all that, I'm going to right now. I don't like this translation preaching. Here's why. This is the Greek word keruso, and it literally means in the Greek world that it was uh, formed in, an announcer, a declarer of an event, one who makes known something. So in the Greek world that Paul was writing in, and the Roman world, it meant a herald in a Greek court. So the king would come in, and the herald would say, the king is here, everybody stand. He would announce something. Or in the Roman world, it meant a, a, a diplomatic person who would go on a diplomatic mission to, to announce to another nation what the king had said, in, or the Senate, the Roman Senate had said in this nation here. And so all the word simply means is that there's an important message, and you're a carrier, a speaker of that message. Now, why don't I like the translation preaching? See, what happened is, is when we then pick this word up in the New Testament, when they would originally read this 2,000 years ago, all they read was Caruso, and they would think announcer, declarer, making known something. But we translate it preach. And I think that's a bad translation because when you guys think of a preacher, who do you think of? Me. You do. Naturally so. Well, Jamie's the preacher. Daryl's the preacher. Certainly I'm not the preacher because I don't go around preaching. That's the way we use that word. And you're right, by the way, to think like that because that's the English word that we use for that. But that's not what this word means. This word simply means anybody who's a carrier of God's message, we are to speak that message in our spheres of influence. That's what it's getting at here. How can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? That's what this word means. Uh, to be sure, look at how the Life Application Bible Commentary says it. It says this Greek word is not limited to the Sunday morning sermon from the pulpit. Rather, it means to announce or proclaim something. All believers are sent to announce this good news. And so once we get that, we simply need to ask, well, what is the message that we are sending? And we've already said it like 20,000 times this morning. It's the gospel. I, I know at this point, because I've been doing this for probably well, a long time, I, I know at this point there are, are people that say, well, yeah, Jamie, but you know the gospel. I mean, like, how do you explain that to people? It's like, well, it seems kind of complex, and, you know, they, they don't seem to get it, and da 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 I, I just, I want to bring us back again, and we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, but I want us to bring us back again, that explaining the gospel to somebody is not nearly as complicated as you and I have made it today. I, I'm telling you, it's not. And the reason I know this is because we teach our third graders, no, really, our first graders in Sunday school, the gospel, and they receive it, and then they go home with their little pictures, and they tell their parents about it. And all I know is that if our first graders can get it and repeat it, then there's hope for you and me. Amen? There is. So I've said this before. Let's just review this again. Four words. Oh, you only remember four words. 
to, in order to get and communicate the gospel. You know what those four words are? God, sin, Christ, and you. That's the gospel. God, sin, Christ, and you. Let's drill this down. Let's say it together. God, sin, Christ, and you. Some of you didn't do that with me. Ed, do this with me. God, sin, Christ, and you. Anybody else want to get picked on? Hopefully, we all get this. I, I, I've said it this way for years, guys. I, because I know that that's the core of the gospel, I don't do it this way, but it only takes me, with that understanding, two minutes to ever tell somebody the gospel. I, I don't do it that way because it would feel kind of rushed and canned, but I can tell somebody the gospel in two minutes. Let me do it right now. I'm going to pick on Ken, our security guy here in the front row. Say I'm having a coffee with Ken. And again, I wouldn't do it this way because it would be kind of canned, but I'd slow down in it. But, but, but essentially, I'd say to Ken, and I do this lead-in all the time. I'll say to Ken, uh, if he's interested in spiritual things, Ken, has anybody ever sat down with you and explained to you the gospel of Jesus Christ with such clarity that you could repeat it back to me? Has anybody ever done that with you? And many, yeah, many times people say, well, Ken did. He said, they'll say No. And one of the reasons they say no, because they know if you say yes, that you're going to ask them, well, then what is it? And they don't want to do that. So uh, they'll say no. And then in a very respectful way, and I've done this a thousand times, I'll say, well, do you mind if I share with you what the gospel is? And 99 times out of 100, somebody will say, no, I'd be very interested in that. And I don't pull out a napkin, and I don't draw a bridge, and I don't do things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just don't do that, because that just feels canned. I look them in the eye, and I'll say, here's the deal, Ken. God loves you more than you could ever realize. He made you, you're the apple of his eye, and ever since the foundation of the world, he has longed to be in relationship with you. That's where it all begins. But my guess is you don't feel that. My guess is you don't know that. My guess is you don't live that, and there's a reason why. And that is that the Bible says that there's something in the human heart and the human mind that blocks that, and it's called sin. And we're all born with it. It's this propensity to go our own way and do our own thing. And God takes sin so seriously that he says, in my holiness, that sin separates me from you. But here's the amazing news, is that God, let's go back to this again, loves you so much that he decided to do something about that. And 2,000 years rooted in history, he sent Jesus Christ to be your sin bearer, to take your sin upon himself. In fact, it's so powerful, Ken, that if you were the only person alive at that time on planet Earth, he would have still sent Jesus because he wants you to know him. And what he asks, and this is the only thing he asks, is that you believe and place your trust in the one who bore your sin, Jesus Christ. And when you do, you've crossed over from death to life, from having no hope to having hope eternal, and you are now his. Let me ask you guys a question. Did I do that in two minutes or less? Two minutes or less. And, and again, I don't usually do it that intensely and that truncated because, again, that, that feels like I'm trying to sell somebody something. But, but I'll take 10 minutes maybe cause, you know, and, and, and walk somebody through that. Maybe interject one of my own stories in it or what have you. Or maybe ask them a question. I, I love to ask people when I've said to them that God loves them. They're the apple of his eye. He made them to know him. I'll say, has that been your experience up to this point in life? <laughs> And most people say, well, gosh, no, that, well, then let's talk about why. Do you see what I'm saying here? We've made the gospel so complicated, and we don't need to. All we're asked to do, now don't miss this, is to be sent into our spheres of influence and then speak what we know to be true about God. 
Now, interesting, notice up to this point in the salvation journey, and I find this fascinating, that the first two legs of somebody else coming to Christ are on us. Isn't that interesting? And in other words, the first two legs of this journey of somebody ever having any hope to know Jesus depends on the church. It depends on you and me being the church and caring enough for those around us. But all that's going to change right now. Because the third leg of the journey is that they need to hear. Romans 10 verse 14, third rhetorical question says, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Or, as some translations insinuate, heard of. This is a very, very common Greek word. I'm not even going to tell you what the word is. It's just so common. It's used 429 times in the New Testament, this word here. But here's what it literally means, and this will be liberating for many of you. And that's that it simply means to hear in such a way that you understand. One of my favorite marital fights with Kim is when she looks at me and says, I'm speaking and you're not hearing or listening. (laughs) And she's right. Because we can fake hearing, we can pretend that we're hearing, or we can even try to hear, but we're not really getting it. No, this word means the opposite. This word means that not only are you hearing, but you're hearing in such a way that a light's going on in your head. You're beginning to understand. That's what's going on here. And here's what's liberating about this. That part is not up to you. Amen? It's not, oh, you guys missed that completely. That part is not up to you. Amen? It's really not. Some of you think it is. Some of you think it's up to your persuasion and you using all the right words and you doing it really well. Get that out of your mind. It's not about that. It's between them and God. You're a fallen vessel, simply sent to speak what you know about Jesus. And God says, at that point, it's my show. I'll take over. And if I want them to hear, if I want to give them ears to hear and eyes to see... I don't care how you say it. I'm going to give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Amen. You're awake now. Good. It's up to them. It's up to them and God. And it's between them and God. So as Larry Crabb would say, the pressure's off at this point. I mean, if there's any pressure you guys feel today, and I can't protect you from this because this is God, he does say, get out there. You're sent and speak. I mean, don't be a doorknob. Do something to care about those around you. That's, that's what God says to you and I. But once we do that, stop pressuring yourself that you need to save them and that you need to do it right and that you need to do this. Because honestly, God says, as soon as you've opened your mouth, now get out of the way because this is me and me working on this person. I had a great thing happen to one of our elders just recently. This was a story I'll never forget. We meet every month as an elder team for soul care where we share our lives and, and pray for each other. And one of the younger elders shared how he's obviously, as we all are, hopefully taking this love one journey seriously. And he's written down the three or four people in a sphere of influence that he is turning up the heat on in a redemptive way to care about. And one of the guys lives out of state. He went to high school with him years ago and he's since moved out of state, but they keep in touch. He's shared the gospel with him numerous times, but to no avail or seemingly to no avail. And he was sharing just about a week ago that uh, he was sitting in his office and his friend called him. And this has happened to many of you before. It was crisis time for his friend. We don't need to go on all the gory details, but you'll fill in the gaps in your mind right now. It was marital crisis for him. His marriage had gone downhill and things were not looking good. 
So my elder friend was sitting on the other end of the line, just listening to him and trying to journey with him. But, you know, he's not a marriage counselor. He doesn't know what the answer is to this guy's marriage. Probably you don't either. I'm not sure I do. Uh, but he was listening and, and decided, as he had done numerous times before, to nudge the conversation in the direction of who? God and Jesus. So he started to throw out a few tidbits there. And, and, and on this particular phone call, the guy started to bite. And so he just started to nudge the conversation more in the realm of the gospel. And eventually, he shared with his friends in a very natural way four things. Do you know what those four things were? Say it with me. God, sin, Christ, and you. And on this particular day, his friend said, I really need Jesus. And he prayed with them over the phone lines there to receive Jesus Christ. I, I got to tell you, as the elder was sharing this, all the other elders, and this should, uh, oh, this, don't lose confidence in your elders, but they were like, really, really, that happened, you know? And they were like almost stunned. And, and, and why are we stunned at that? Because, you know, we've tried to do that before and it didn't happen and this time it did. And you know what that teaches us? Now, don't miss this. It teaches us it's not about you. I, I don't think my elder friend did anything different that day. I really don't. I don't think he was more winsome. I don't think that he used better words. I don't think that he explained it in a different way. I mean, he, he's, a, he's kind of a, well, he's a nonplussed personality. I mean, he's just there. And, 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 and he just did his thing. But in the hands of God, in the, in the hands of a God who wants to reach lost people, it was absolutely enough. And again, it is God's show. Because you see, in God's hands, when they do hear, the core of salvation is what? When they believe. And that's the fourth leg of the journey. Last question, how will then they call on him in whom they have not believed? Uh, this word belief, we're not going to focus on today here because we do it all the time here at our church, but it simply is the Greek word pistuo, and it means to put your trust in something to have faith in something. Really the heart of pistuo, and, and, and I love this about this word, talk about the, the brilliance of God, simply means to rest in something. It means to put your weight on something. So Ed here has crutches today because he's recovering from surgery. He, he has to put his weight on those crutches when he walks. That's what faith is. It's resting on something. So faith in that sense is passive. It's not an active word because it's not about good works to earn your way to heaven. It's about resting in what Jesus has already done for you. And that's what God is asking of all humanity, to stop striving, stop trying to earn your own salvation because you can't. Your good works, your most righteous deeds are like filthy rags in my presence, God says. No, trust in what Christ has done. And the second you do that, you experience salvation. And again, I'm not going to belabor this, but... I hope we all understand the pressure's off for you and I on this one. This is between that person and God. I can't change the composition of a human heart, and neither can you. So don't put pressure on you there. Just hang in there, answer questions, journey with the person as long as it takes. That's what God asks of us. And then there's one final leg in the journey. And this, I, I see, my personal interpretation here is that this is a confirmation leg that one has come to believe because here's the full last question. We read part of it, but here's how the whole thing goes. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him whom they have not believed? In other words, I think a confirmation, a response to 
the gospel, a sign that you believe is that you call on the name of the Lord. That word call literally means to cry out. It means you're in distress and you're asking for help. Go back to our introduction. You don't know where you, how to get to where you want to go, so you need directions. And so you're asking God for that. And the reason I don't think this is really the salvation part, believe is the salvation part, is because this comes after belief. And, and, and the reality is, is that when I got saved in March 11th, 1981, for the last 34 years, you know what I've been doing just about every day? I've been calling out to God. I have. I made a regular habit, how about you, of just calling out to God based on my salvation. Even in times when I'm weak, even in times when I'm doubting, even in times when I'm hurting, I'm just constantly calling out to God. And I think it's a sign that you are his. So add it all up. This is really profound stuff that the word is teaching us here. Uh, The journey to salvation involves sending, speaking, hearing, believing, a response of calling. And and when that happens, we can have assurance that you or that person is saved and they know the Lord. And as we've seen, the first two legs of this, however, are all about God and us, God sending us to speak and hear. We're his voice piece, we're his hands, we're his feet, we're the body of Christ. And then God takes over, if you will, at this point and says, no, okay, get out of the way. It's about me and them. And Paul sums it up so beautifully here, quoting Isaiah chapter 52 in verse 15 here, when he says, how beautiful then are the feet of those who preach the good news. And yet without all these aspects in this journey working in tandem together, then here's what happens. People don't hear about Jesus and they don't have the chance to respond with saving faith. Now, why is all of this so important? And what does this have to do with you and me living here in Phoenix in the 21st century in our day and age? And to explain this, I need to invite you for a second right now into my world. I don't do this very often because my world, believe it or not, includes some very, very boring, regular, monotonous, mundane things. In other words, leading a church is not as exciting as many of you would think. I mean, it is exciting, but many things I have to do are just uh, pretty mundane stuff. And, and, and just like your business or your, or your family or your educational institution, whatever you're involved in, there are constant debates in my world over things that to some people seem obvious and even petty, but boy, my contemporaries are really good at debating these things. And I want to share with you one of those things right now because you'll see why this is important to us. But one of the dilemmas that's been plaguing many churches today, and even has hit Scottsdale Bible Church over our 53-year-old history, is this. It's an ongoing debate between discipleship and evangelism. Mary, you're going to love this. It's an ongoing debate between does the church exist as a spiritual health club for the already convinced to get more healthy, or does the church exist as a hospital for those that are bleeding to death and need to find Jesus? Which is it? And though some of you are saying, well, it's both, let's not go there quite yet because the whole history of the last 100 years here in America has been that we've divided entire denominations, even entire types of churches along these lines. 
To the point that now today we have seeker churches, we have missional churches, we have Bible churches, we have community churches, and then we have all the denominations which have also taken sides on this. And honestly, it's over this issue. And I hear it all the time. You do too. I mean, if somebody goes to a seeker church today, and a seeker church would be defined as a church that has tons of outreach programs, flashy Sunday services, easy to understand, truncated sermons, lots of service projects. And I hear people all the time say about their seeker church, they say to the lost people around them, come to my church. It's designed for you which they mean somebody who's lost and pathetic as you. Come to my church because we have tailor-made it for you. And there are churches here in Scottsdale this morning right now that are doing just that. And they are evangelistic machines winning lots of people to Jesus. But then there's other types of churches. Uh, these are churches that have more meaty worship services, complete with in-depth Bible teaching, big Sunday school programs, Awana for the kids. Uh, they're built to attract more of the already convinced. And again, I hear people say it this way. They'll say, come to my church, you're going to get a lot of meat. Come to my church and, you know, we're going to teach you and train you and we're going to build you up. And, and quite frankly, that's been a lot of the history of Scottsdale Bible Church. And years ago, because this has been going on for so long, years ago when I started out in ministry and I was developing what we call my philosophy of ministry, what I think church should be, I remember thinking to myself, as some of you might be thinking right now, why does it have to be one or the other? Why does it have to be either or? I I got saved in a Bible church context. I I fit best in the context I'm in right now. I mean, my my Bible church back home, Fellowship Bible Church, I got discipled there, I got married there, I got baptized there. And I got to tell you, I got some good mentoring and teaching. And as a young Christian, I, I, I got just, I mean, I was poured into greatly. Uh, But then, after seminary, I interned at the largest seeker church in the nation at that time. And and the church that I went to in Detroit was more seeker-focused. And and so, again, I'd been in Bible churches. I'm now finding myself in seeker churches. And honestly, I remember thinking as a young pastor, why does it have to be one or the other? Uh, This is true, guys. They did not argue about this issue in the New Testament. They really didn't. They argued about a lot of issues in the New Testament. They argued about uh, Greeks versus Jews, and they argued about uh, women and ministry and what they can do and shouldn't do, and and they argued about about a lot of things. They never argued about who is church for and who should be coming to church and whether or not this is an evangelistic or discipleship entity. Never argued about it. And we're saying, well, what did they do? They just did it. I, I mean, they met on a regular basis. In places like Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi. And they met in homes. And they unashamedly and unapologetically did their business with God. They taught the Bible. They studied the Bible. They prayed. They worshiped. They prophesied. And then you got to read 1 Corinthians 14 because it talks about this very natural, organic entity. That as they were doing all that stuff with God, you know what else they did? They invited a lot of Greeks and Romans to be a part of the process. They invited what they called ignorant and unknowing people to come into the midst of the believing community and experience the power of God and the truth of God in their midst. And they never said, well, I don't know if they want to come because they might not like it. They never thought like that. They just said, we're not ashamed of this. This is the power of God working in our midst. Of course we want them to be here, to see it. If they don't get it, that's not on us. If they don't get it, that's because they're not ready with God. They understood Paul's teaching here in Romans. 
Our job is to be sent and to speak. Their job is to hear, to believe, and to call. And they just did it. And so years ago, honestly, I remember thinking, it just drove me crazy. Why do we have to make it one or the other? A New Testament church truly emphasizes both evangelism and discipleship, and they function, now get this, as both a hospital and a health club, all rolled up into one. And it makes us kind of a schizophrenic institution, doesn't it? Because in one sense, we're kind of lifting weights spiritually and doing our Bible studies and things like that, and then, and, and then the next moment, we got somebody in triage. We got somebody who, who's just hemorrhaging, and they're on life support, and we're like, we're gonna rally around them. And, and honestly, that's the journey we have to take. I'm going to close with an illustration that might bring this home to you. I think it will because I, I like this illustration. Uh, let me ask you a lead-in question. Which is a better fruit? Which is a more important fruit, an apple or an orange? Does anybody know? Yeah, I, I don't know either, so just hang on to that for a second. But which is a better writing instrument? Uh, which is more useful, a pencil or a pen? Yeah, I don't know either. Just hang on to that for a minute. This one's going to create a stir. stir. Which is a better sport? Football or baseball? Shout it out. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Now, let's stop here because this is exactly my point. If you and I were having a conversation today and I said to you, which is a better fruit you would have an opinion on that. You might say an orange because it's filled with vitamin C. Or you might say, no, no, way too much sugar. It's an apple because an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And you would have a personal preference on that fruit. If I asked you which is a better writing instrument, a pencil or a pen, you might say, golly, of course a pencil because we make mistakes and we have to be able to erase it. And then some of you say, no, no, of course a pen is because it's permanent. What we write should stand. And You'd have an opinion on that. And certainly... There are people that have opinions on this. I, I, I mean, football fans, they describe baseball as one of the most painfully boring sports on planet Earth today. And then baseball fans, they say, how dare you? This is the great American pastime. I mean, it's un-American not to appreciate baseball. We have strong opinions on this. Now watch this. If you and I, however, were in a cogent, reasonable moment... And I said, putting personal preference aside, do both apples and oranges matter in the realm of nutrition? What would you say? Of course they do. Putting personal preferences aside, are are both these legitimate writing instruments that we should and can use for different purposes? Of course they are. And putting even personal preferences aside, in the whole history of sports in America, is there room for both football and baseball? Yes. And what we realize when we do that is that it's okay to have a personal preference. It's okay to prefer one over the other for ourselves personally based on our gifts and our passions and our likes and our dislikes. But we need to recognize that both matter. And that's my plea to us as a church here, especially a church that historically has been very good at discipleship, but has not reached our redemptive potential as a church when it comes to outreach to this community. It's time for us to repent and to realize that maybe our proclivity is toward discipleship because that's the way some of us are wired. Look, I got to tell you guys right now, I'm a discipler. I really am. I talk a big game on evangelism because I know what the word of God says, 
but I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm not an evangelist. My two gifts are in teaching and leadership. And so honestly, my natural tendency is to strengthen the inner workings of a church and to help us be strong. But because I know the word of God, and more important, I know God's heart for the lost, I also know we better be doing both. And we better be emphasizing both. And I beg us as a church to repent and to have that similar mindset. And so that's why we're doing this Love One campaign. If you were handed a bulletin uh, this morning, I want you to pull out this card right now. Please, every one of you pull it out. Even if you're not going to fill it out, uh, I have a pencil here, though, if you want to fill it out. But even if you're not going to fill it out, please get this card in front of you. I don't know if some of you remember, when we started our Compelled by Grace uh, campaign three years ago, we developed some prayer walls. Do you guys remember those in the worship center? And, and we were praying for people during this campaign that don't know the Lord. And we, we wrote their names down and we rolled it up and we put it in our, our kind of like Jerusalem wailing wall, in our, in our prayer wall. And you can see, well, where are they? Yep, this, we have them over here, the venue. This is the venue's prayer walls here permanently on, their, uh, on the wall. But we've taken the prayer walls from the worship center and uh, we're going to do something special with them over the next few weeks. But we've taken them and we've put them out in the courtyard here. Because we're going to reignite our prayer walls two weeks from now when we get back into our sanctuary. And so what I need you to do with our Love One journey right now is to take this card and prayerfully write down one, two, or three names of somebody or somebodies that God is calling you to love. Uh, to be sent to, to speak to. And the reason we want you, that I want you to write it down is because we're going to roll it up like we did three years ago. And when you leave today, you're going to see the prayer walls out there. And I want you to put it in the prayer wall because here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a ton of people praying for you and for those people because we are going to pray over those walls on a regular basis. It's going to become part of our journey as a church. If you don't know who those names are here today, we've already thought of that. Now, we're going to have the prayer walls up next week, too, before we then go into the worship center in two weeks. And so if you need the week to think about it, pray about it, please take the card home. We'll have more next week, too. Uh, but let's all participate in this. I have people that God has placed on my heart that need to hear about Jesus. Because here's the closing thought that, that, that we need you to see. And that is, in answering the question I asked in the title of today's message, whose turn is it? It's our turn to help it be their turn. Amen? It really is. I mean, I'm not asking us to ever not be the church. We are the church. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We care for each other. We give generously. We preach the word. We worship like he's coming back tomorrow. We are the church. But as much as it's our turn, it's our turn in a very real way, as we've seen today, to help it be their turn. And we have that responsibility in love to those around us in this community. Last thought. Many of you know this, some of you don't. When you get back into our worship center in two weeks, you're going to be very encouraged. You're going to be blown away. It's really special. I, that's the best word I can use for you. It's just special. Teddy, you're going to love it. The, the seat we have for you is a nice seat, and it's a comfortable seat, and, and you're going to have raised armrests so you can cuddle up close if you got a girl next to you that's your wife. And, uh, and, and so it's going to be a very, very special place for us to worship God in. And we've also put a lot of seats in there. I think it's going to be breathtaking for you. In fact, part of our Compelled by Grace vision in starting the Mountain Valley campus and doing all the things is that we have increased capacity. Now watch this. Just on this campus alone, with our chapel, the venue, and the new worship center, to 2,900 people every hour that we can have on this campus, just this campus alone, uh, to hear the gospel. 
And we have room for about 800 at Mountain Valley. I'm sorry, about, there's two services over. We have room for about four or 500 at Mountain Valley, about three or 400 at Cactus. So, so right now, just in three service times, Saturday night and two Sunday morning, we can reach upwards of 11 to 12,000 people every weekend. And here, what's going to come, this one might scare some of you. We're only half that size as an adult population right now. And that's why we did this. We did this because 87% of Scottsdale this morning is riding a bike or playing tennis or sitting at Starbucks and they're facing a crisis eternity. And so we did this so that we can have room for them. It's our turn to help it be their turn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your goodness. Thank you for these dear people who come early in the morning to worship you and uh, to leave room for those in the next two hours. And I pray, God, that as we each go our way now, that, God, we would not, not, not let your word fall on deaf ears, but that, God, we would realize that we are ones who are sent, we are ones who need to speak, and that, Lord, at that point, your spirit ignites that, and you help others hear and believe and spend a lifetime calling upon you. God, may you use us uh, to spread your gospel, your word, to those in need, we pray. And may they receive, may your spirit have free sway and free flow in this culture as we carry your word to them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.